Hello and welcome back to Diversity Be Like. It's Sequoia and I am here with my guest, Dr. Jessica Isom. Dr. Isom is a racial health equity champion, psychiatrist, and a clinical psychiatry instructor at the Yale School of Medicine. So it's important to note that the views expressed in this episode are her own and that nothing that we're sharing here today should be construed as medical advice, even though it's going to be amazing advice. So (laughs) welcome, Dr. Isom. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started. Sure. So I grew up in North Carolina for the most part, but my parents were both military. So I lived lots of different places before officially settling in North Carolina and spending seventh grade through high school there. Four kids in the family, two parents for most of my childhood before they divorced. And we were all interested in different things. And somehow I was interested in in medicine. So I did not know any physicians or or nurses or any kind of healthcare professional, but I got exposure in high school by doing a a CNA certification experience. That was my first exposure. I just, I don't know where the idea came from that I could be a physician, but once it was in my head, that was the track. So from there, I went to Xavier, Louisiana, the University of Louisiana, which is like a pipeline extraordinaire for Black matriculants into medical school. Okay. So fortunately, they gave me literally a roadmap to get in and I made it successfully nice. and uh, then went to UNC for medical school back home. And then I ended up at Yale for psychiatry residency, which I left about a year and a half ago. Okay. Oh, I love that. Thank you for telling people your journey. I think some people feel like it's not approachable, right? You hear about being a doctor, but it's like, oh, you know, all the school, all the work, all of that. But I think having exposure to people who have actually done it and learning about how they got there is so important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That said, real quick pivot, how important do you think it is for patients of color to have doctors of color? Yeah. I'm trying to think if I've ever had a doctor of of color and I do not know if I have actually, (laughs) So, although I am a physician, I'm not sure if I've ever received care from a black physician, which is interesting to reflect on. You know, there's evidence across the board, no matter what demographic characteristic we're talking about, that when you are more like another person, it's easier to form rapport, that you can more easily have trust in that individual confidence in what they're recommending to you. So it's the same for race. Um, when you are a similar race or ethnicity to your patient or vice versa, you in, you tend to have a better experience, more satisfaction. You're more likely to follow the recommendations, et cetera, et cetera. So I was just on a panel last night that talked about how not having specifically Black physicians and other healthcare professionals sets up the 13% of us for failure in some ways. Mm. We're not able to access the same race or ethnicity in our healthcare encounters. So we miss out. Whereas those who are white, those who are Asian are the majority of the healthcare workforce at mm-hmm. the physical level. So they're luckily able to walk in and most times see someone from their own racial or ethnic group. I remember hearing this story about it was a young black doctor and he was saying how he was doing rounds with the attending and how mm-hmm. they went in and there was a young black guy who was just kind of sitting there listening to the attending, telling him what was going on with him. And he didn't really say much. And Mm -hmm. so the attendant was like, do you have any questions? And the guy was like, "Mm, no. And then as they walked out, the attending was like, see, he doesn't even care about what's going on with him. He doesn't even, you know, and he just looked at it as a guy didn't care. Right. Mm -hmm. And the black doctor went back in and he was like, hey, listen, this is what's going on. And he broke it down to him in layman's term, in a culturally sensitive way so he can understand. And the guy was like, oh, okay, that's what, okay, see, I didn't get it. So mm-hmm. something wrong with my brain then. And mm-hmm. so he continued to break it down in a way that he can understand and that was tangible for him. So it was yeah. never that he didn't understand. Or it, it was never that he didn't care. It was, he just simply didn't understand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I And it's funny because I feel like it's a natural human tendency to blame other people for things that you don't do well, but it, it manifests itself when these interracial encounters go wrong. Physicians will blame the patient. There's something the patient did or did not do. Mm-hmm. Your poor sense of cultural awareness and cross-cultural communication skills. That's the deficit. Right. Um, so, <laughs> but it reminds me, because when I was in um, medical school, it'd be really interesting to just 
be trying to be a medical student and going into rounds like at 6 a.m. in the morning and going through a checklist of things I was supposed to do. And I'd be working with a black patient and they would just pause and just, <laughs> it's, it's so funny. It's like the patient script ends and the real two black people in a room script begins. Mm-hmm. It's happening <laughs> all the time. So one patient was like, oh my God, I can't believe you're a black doctor. Can I get your information? Cause I want to share it with my niece. Mm-hmm. And in like a professional standards kind of way, that kind of conversation is not one that we're like taught to have or a boundary that we're taught to cross. But in like a black unicorn physician kind of way, it happens all the time. Right. right? We're unicorns. So I, that reminded me of those moments, which are just magical and beautiful examples of why it's so important to have us in those spaces because we can connect with people. Right. And it does feel different. I remember when I first moved to Los Angeles, I was very lucky to find not only a black doctor, but a black female doctor. And it just it made a world of difference because I love the doctor that I had before, but I moved to another city. So I had to find somebody new. And Mm -hmm. It was just a different connection. It was a different level. Like I was able, she was able to explain things in a way that just made sense. And when she left the practice, I was absolutely devastated Mm -hmm. (laughs) because it just, it was different after that. Right, right. So I saw a post that you recently shared that said, diversity is a fact, equity (laughs) is a choice, inclusion is an action, belonging is an outcome. I think that's very poignant, right? Mm -hmm. How do you see that? manifesting itself in the world of medicine? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, (laughs) there's basic people and then there's people who are more advanced. And most people in medicine are not able to articulate these concepts in an advanced way. So they'll often talk about the facts, like we need more diversity with very limited understanding of how that translates to everything else. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's like one of the simple things that they can understand, like there's not enough of this thing here and we need more of it because that would be helpful. But at the same time, what it would take to get that fact to be true requires all of the other things along that continuum that people are not often thinking about. So when we talk about inclusion being a choice, Mm -hmm. I still remember in medical school, I had this term called chocolate covered answers Mm -hmm. um, because I'd be in class and I would offer something during a group exercise and the group's response to that offered answer or suggestion was quite different, right? So it's like, even in the group dynamics of being in the learning environment, the fact that there is such a thing as a chocolate covered answer means that there's not an inclusive culture. Right inclusive behaviors. And then when it comes to equity, it makes me think about like the minority tax in medicine. Mm -hmm. They want us there. They want that diversity fact, but then they don't really offer equitable opportunities for keeping us there and actually ensure that it will be inequitable by lumping on us all these additional responsibilities. Mm. So not only are we in medical school, many of us don't have family who are physicians. We're kind of like floating along, but you're asking us to increase the pipeline. So that means I'm in medical school, shouldering the responsibility of changing the facts. So I'm talking to high school students, middle school students, and elementary school students in my own personal unpaid time Mm. and getting no recognition for that. So then you leave medical school, you leave training, and you gave all of this free labor and really expertise, like we're DEI practitioners almost, Mm -hmm. but it's not recognized equitably compared to like a white medical student who did none of that, but wrote a few papers. So our recognized value is different. And then as far as belonging, I mean, the institution's inherently racist. It, it's, it doesn't even acknowledge that fact. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that changes among a million other things. We're always going to be these outsiders that they let in. I agree. I definitely agree with that. Um, yeah. On both sides, right? Mm-hmm. From the, the practitioner side, as well as from the side of the patient. Mm-hmm. So if last year taught us anything, it's that it's not enough to be not racist. Mm-hmm. For real change to happen, you have to be actively anti-racist. And so when you're dealing with a racist institution, there has to be some some level of awareness for what it means to be actively anti-racist. What does that mean to you? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It depends. <laughs> like, and I'm actually trying to think through uh, articulating this in the same way that we articulate other things okay. in really granular ways. I mean, if we were talking about 
like what is cultural competency mean? Mm-hmm. You will find like actual competencies that are measurable and uh, also are accompanied by like interventions. So if you're not good at this thing, we're going to offer you this thing and then you will become better. Right. That, but there's some accountability associated with that. Anti-racism in reality at this time can often be, I accept that racism is real. Like that like is the level that some people are at. And then the second level might be, I accept racism is real and I should do something about that. Mm-hmm. And then the third level might be, I understand that it's really hard <laughs> to be anti-racist mm-hmm. and it's lots of work. I feel like that's where most people graduate from and end up at. And then from there, there's not a lot of infrastructure to support further development, Mm -hmm. which is why I am interested in offering some of that infrastructure and thinking about that conceptually, because it's a miracle for people even to get to that third stage. Mm -hmm. But then when they get there, they're kind of like scrambling and doing a million different things, putting out racism everywhere, basically. Right. Um, (laughs) Just like, I appreciate that. It's a good thing to name racism and point it out to others, but we have to have some kind of like organized anti-racism like framework right. to make sure that we're actually accomplishing something here. Right. Because what's the solution at that point? We can point out the problem forever. We know that it's a problem mm-hmm. and it is good. Like you said, that people are seeing it, but mm-hmm. at what point are we having a solution to that? Mm-hmm. And so that leads into my next question. One conversation that is really bothering me right now is mm-hmm. the narrative that Black people don't want to take the COVID vaccine because of the Tuskegee experiment. And mm-hmm. there is some truth to that. So I'm not saying that it's not true, mm-hmm. but I think that it's an oversimplification mm-hmm. of everything. And it completely ignores the fact that there are true racial disparities that happen every single day. Mm-hmm. And it minimizes the lack of trust that is cultivated by those disparities that happen every day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So as an advocate in this space, as someone who is working to think through infrastructures on a very basic level, just kind of starting out, what are some things that you've done personally? Um, mm-hmm. Or what are some things that you can recommend to other doctors when they see their colleagues exhibiting bias? Yeah, yeah. I mean, first, I work in a clinic that serves probably like 85% Black patients. And we have Black patients coming in every day for the vaccine. (laughs) So (laughs) first of all, (laughs) and they should be advertised as such because these are not nurses. They're not physicians. They're not pharmacists. They're not us. They are actual community members that are saying, I want this vaccine to protect myself and my family. Mm -hmm. Um, And the narrative does not have to be solely focused on vaccine hesitancy or vaccine refusal, although that should be acknowledged. Bias is such a, it's sort of like calling people the the R word these days, like to say that someone has bias, almost like saying someone's racist. Mm -hmm. Usually your automatic reaction to that is is defensiveness. Like I don't have bias. That's not something that's within me. And it's really hard for us to respond to that in the moment because Mm -hmm. we know that if we say something, we're going to elicit probably a negative reaction from the other person. So my recommendation has been to practice before you even enter into this situation, what you would do. And there's really good resources out there to help you do that. One is by a woman named Diane Goodman. She's a social justice educator. And if you Google it, you'll find it. I think it's called responding to biased or offensive comments. Mm -hmm. And she gives you 15 strategies that you can choose from to use in the moment when something biased is happening. So one is like a clarification strategy, like (laughs) where you ask someone, what did you mean by that? Mm -hmm. Can you understand? Another is the repeat back strategy. You literally repeat what they said so they can hear it in a different way. Mm -hmm. And there's a few others. But in medicine specifically, there's a hierarchy and usually the most offensive people are higher in the hierarchy, (laughs) the most progressive are lower. So often it's not just the skills, but also how do we create a culture where offering that feedback doesn't result in retaliation or dismissal, validation. So So do you think that that hierarchy happens because a lot of those people who are higher have worked in the field longer and so they come from that? time period when some of those things were okay? Yeah. People don't want to give things up. That's, that's like the number one motivation to not change Mm -hmm. the fear of losing something. And who wants to give up 
saying negative, disparaging things about other groups of people. <laughs> and as, as simplistic as that sounds, it's so true, right? Yeah. It's so true. Mm -hmm. So you recently published an article entitled When Anti-Racism Becomes Trauma. Tell me Mm -hmm. a little bit about that. Yeah, that was something that needed to be written for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I wrote that and this because I I think it's important to describe the process of where, why it ended up on Medium. Mm -hmm. I first wrote it and I sent it to someone from Stat News. And it was a it was a, a person who I talked with before. And I felt comfortable sending it to this person just so a white person could read it. Mm-hmm. And when I say white person, why is that relevant? Most people making decisions about what ends up in journals or on websites are white. That's white supremacy in the right. media. Right. Um, so he was like, nah, this is not our thing, but it's great. You should send it somewhere else and I'll help you figure out where to send it. So he's, he's a wonderful person. So then I was like, let me go the academic route. And I sent it to both New England Journal of Medicine and to to the Journal of the American Medical Association. And these are people who I predicted would not necessarily be checking for this piece. So then I was like, why am I going through these white supremacist hoops? Why don't I just publish it myself? Because this is my story. Right. And I don't really care what their feedback is about it. So that's why I published on Medium. Um, But you know, the crazy thing about that, too, is that you're a Yale doctor. You know what I mean? Like you're Yale. It doesn't get much better than that. And so for you to still have trouble publishing Mm -hmm. something or I don't want to say feeling validated because you weren't looking for validation. You just wanted to get the word out. But for people to on some level invalidate what you were saying by not publishing it is so interesting. But very interesting. Very interesting. But another thing too is that it's an exclusive thing to publish because there's like paywalls. So so the most inclusive approach would be to make it freely available through a website like Medium as well. Mm-hmm. That way any person can read it. Because there's not, my sister's not reading JAMA and she's like an accountant at Dell, but she's not checking for that. But she'll go on Medium and read it. Right. And also engaged in anti-racism work too. So it was a good decision. But I am someone who lots of people ask questions about anti-racism who lots of people want, in, white people specifically, want in spaces where it's being discussed. And they are reckless. And <laughs> for that reason, I was like, I need to explain to you how reckless you are. So I offered one example of something that actually happened last year. And that thing was what inspired me to say, I, I, should, I should write about this because that was, that was a lot. So I wrote about it <laughs> in the piece. So I'll add those that link in the show notes so people could check it out and read it for themselves. But mm-hmm. can you tell me a little bit about, I mean, would you mind sharing the experience? Itself? So I am a psychiatrist and we have lots of intimate, deep conversations. That's what we do. And we were talking about some kind of like article that talked about race and racism. And then in this group, we had split into smaller groups to have a, an intimate discussion and I was hoping to not be the only Black person in the group. Unfortunately, I was not. I was there with a senior Black psychiatrist, which was really nice. And we were also with two white women. And I tell myself at the beginning of these things, like, I'm just going to chill. I have a million things to say, but this <laughs> is a white people problem. And the white people need to take up space in this room. So I let the white people talk first, the two white women. And then something happened. Like, they asked me this question. And I literally, like, I, I really believe left myself mm. and I was looking at myself, answer the question in a way that was not healthy. And I was like, I cannot believe that I just did that. So that was interesting. But then I also observed the black, other black women who went after me set a boundary. And she's basically said, I don't know y'all. I may never see y'all again. I don't think it would be helpful for me to answer this question. And I was like, oh, I wish I could. Like, right. <laughs> that for myself. So that made it really interesting for me. And in reflecting on that, I was like, I'm sure this has happened a million times before this needs to be described. So I described it. Right. I think it it definitely has happened a million times before. And I think it was so highlighted last year because we just couldn't get away from it because every time you turn on the news, they were talking about everything that happened last summer and throughout the year. You go to work and <laughs> they're mm-hmm. sending out notifications about a webinar that they're going to have about racial sensitivity. And they want to start this group where they want you to come and share your feelings and they're going to have a team meeting, all of yeah. this stuff. And it's like, and I remember I said this a couple of times how last year I got tired of dealing with all of that stuff. I got tired of 
my friends asking me, are, are you okay? And I'm here. I just want you to know that I'm here. And yeah. it was like, I appreciate that. But it, it just, it was overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I remember last year very specifically saying, it's not my space to tell people anything mm-hmm. about racism or bias, or I'm not taking on that emotional labor. I'm not doing it. I'm, I'm taking care of me. And then this year I started a podcast <laughs> doing exactly what I said I wasn't mm-hmm. going to do. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But you're only saying it once. I mean, I know once I mean like you're saying it in, an, in a way that could be shared. Mm-hmm. You don't actually have to physically show up in spaces to tell the same story over and over again. Right. And I know another person, what is his podcast called? I'm going to try to remember it. His name is Max. He's a, currently a fourth year medical student at Yale and he has a flip the script. He has a health disparities podcast. Okay. And I remember him saying at a dinner, like I did this podcast, so I don't have to keep telling you all the same story 10 times. Right. So if you ask me a question, I'm going to say go to episode two. Right. So it's a different way of sharing your story that does actually, I hope, ultimately take some of the the labor off of you. Right. And you know what? I do feel less burdened by doing this. And it does feel like a way to show up in a way that I'm comfortable. And Mm -hmm. my goal with this is just that somebody may listen and they may think of something in a different way than Mm -hmm. they might have thought of it before. So. Definitely. And I would say moral of the story for that medium article is that white people's curiosity is not harmless. Like no one's curiosity is harmless. Every person has the capacity to be curious about something and inflict harm. And when you think about like a trauma informed approach, that is where we understand that in that space that your questions, your gestures, what you do or don't say, if it's not trauma informed, could be harmful. So when you're thinking about it through that lens, you're just less reckless, more careful, more self-aware, more aware of others and how they receive (laughs) Like you're just a better human being. So even though it's a clinical thing to be trauma informed, I mean, it really isn't. It's like a human being thing. So. Right. And I think we can even drop that down to a very low basic level, because I think some people, when they hear that, they automatically think, oh, well, that's not me. I'm well intentioned. I, I don't mean that. And I think back to when I was in grad school. And I was in a group with two white ladies and we were doing our project. And this was around the time that President Obama was running for office for the first time. And so they looked at me and very seriously said, oh, my gosh, this has to be so hard for you to pick. Do you pick the woman? Or do you pick the black man? And they were serious. Like they were just, you know, and it's like, there's a whole other party that I might be interested in. Like, you don't, you're linking me very specifically to something and you're making judgments on me and my abilities based on these perceived notions. And for them, it felt very innocent and it felt very, no, I'm just, I'm having a conversation with my friends and (laughs) whatever, but I don't think that they understand how that makes us feel. Mm-hmm. the box that it puts it in and puts us in and then how really inherently problematic it mm-hmm. is and can be. Right. Right. I mean, it, it's, it's sort of like a, there's an entitlement to not be concerned about your impact on other people. Right. Um, it's, I mean, who, who has an entitlement? I mean, there's a bunch of groups we could name. I don't have it in many ways. There are some ways that I do and where I can enact some of the same stuff. But no person should walk around feeling entitled to just exist. Like we all have to be aware of how we're interacting with the environment and the people around us. And I think that's like a a three-year-old thing. I have a (laughs) three-year-old. That's a lesson I'll be offering to her as she is socialized into the world. And I think we sometimes forget those childhood lessons as we grow up. Well, along those lines, I think that leads into my next question. From your perspective, back to medicine, what measures, if any, should be taken to ensure that patients that are from inner cities, uh, lower income, from ethnically diverse populations, what can we do to, what can not we, because I'm not, or I guess we, but what can we do to make sure that they experience the same level of care that patients get from other areas? Yeah. One thing that we do not do in medicine Well, we do. We measure lots of things and we get feedback on lots of things, but they're usually things that have to do with the bottom line. So we're going to measure, for example, how many of our patients had their blood sugar checked in the last three months because a specific insurance company is requiring that. And if we don't do that, we don't get paid. 
Mm. And like, so it's just so interesting to me how we're so like <laughs> laser focused on that kind of outcome. And we put all these supports and interventions in place to accomplish that. But then we're not really seeking the same data mm-hmm. for patient experiences. So one thing would be like, are we actually getting feedback from patients about their experiences? And doctors like to feel good. Like if a patient's in the room, giving us a little smile, saying thank you, we're like deluding ourselves into believing that that is an accurate representation of how they felt about the encounter rather than performative because they're playing a performative role as a patient and Mm -hmm. so are physicians. Mm -hmm. So we are just so like (laughs) deluded into the kind of data that we value. So feeling good does not mean I did a good job with this patient. Right, right. Um, But we don't ask for feedback a lot of the time. And then we don't really have surveys that get, allow them to give anonymous feedback about the things that matter. So I can't even say that this inner city hospital versus some hospital on like, I don't know, Saks Fifth Avenue would even have the data to compare patient experiences in a way that would be really widespread. But we do know certain things. We know that in inner cities that we as a country strategically placed a lot of teaching hospitals there, which means that these are hospitals and clinics where trainees are. So like medical students who are learning how to be a doctor and then residents who are learning how to be a specialty doctor. Mm. So these training institutions, some a lot of times are better because we're younger, we're fresher, we're like bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. But in other ways, we're, we're, we're new, we're naive, we make mistakes. So one thing to think about too might be, what does it mean to be a patient who's forced to access a teaching hospital where there's learners who mm. are engaging in your care versus other people who can walk to this fancy hospital. And if they don't want to be involved with any medical students or residents, they don't have to be there. I um, wonder if people even know that because I didn't know that. I don't. I mean, these are all the secret aspects of <laughs> structural racism in our country. So why is Johns Hopkins in Baltimore? Why is Yale in New Haven? Why is Penn in Philly? Like, why are these large Ivy League institutions that train all these doctors and other healthcare professionals in these large urban centers? Mm. So, I mean, you know. <laughs> that is, I, 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 we learn something new every day. I never knew that. I never thought through that. I never mm-hmm. had to think through that, honestly. So those patients don't, really have a choice. I mean, they can say, Mm -hmm. I don't want to see the training doctor, but there's also a culture of like, I expect to see a training doctor Mm -hmm. and then I expect them to leave because there's a lot of turnover, right? Because we're only on these rotations for sometimes just four weeks or we're only in this clinic sometimes for a year and then we leave. So another thing that other people get who have more privilege and access is continuity of care. Mm -hmm. Um, Work with the same person for years and years and years. And that's a good thing because that probably translates to them knowing you better and providing better care. Right. So there's structural things there. And then there's also cultural things like our aversion to really getting data that would show, are we doing a good job? Are we not doing a good job? Are we having a racist impact or not? And then there's not really accountability if we are. So if a patient says something about the encounter that wasn't right to them, what happens with that? Like, do we get in trouble? I mean, I don't know. I don't, I haven't seen many examples of actual accountability for us not really providing equitable care. It's like, what are we like the mafia? You know, it's interesting. My mom just recently, well, it'll be a year here pretty soon. She is a survivor and just finished her journey with cancer. Mm. And even in spaces, I mean, this was this was in Baltimore that she went and got treated. So now I'm like, oh, <laughs> as I think back on our conversation. But even in that space, it's a well-known, well, reputably respected facility that treats breast cancer. And we saw racial disparity in that, right? We there was a situation where we we wound up meeting this lady who was also going through the same type of breast cancer that my mom was going through. And I think that's another thing. People don't understand that there's so many different types of different mm-hmm. things. And, you mm-hmm. know, but that's that's another episode. I'll have to bring you back for that, <laughs> that conversation. But there was a woman who was also going through triple negative breast cancer, right? So her and my mom had the same breast cancer. They had the same kind of treatment. And when they went in for chemo, what we noticed is that we would come in and they would tell my mom, okay, well, go sit over, go sit in the waiting room. And then the other woman would come in, who was a white woman, and they would say, oh, come on back. 
Mm-hmm. And it was at first, we always have these moments as Black people where we are like, huh, that was weird. Mm-hmm. And you try to talk yourself out of <laughs> any kind of biased conversation. That's that's the irony, too, about people saying we pull the race card, because I think we go through mental gymnastics to try to explain away very obvious situations. Right. But they would tell her, come on back. Then there was a nurse that we liked that was very gentle, very kind with my mom. And my mom is a very, she's sensitive in general, but going through that situation makes you even more sensitive and vulnerable and whatever. Mm -hmm. So this particular nurse, they just respond. She responded very well to the nurse. And so (laughs) that nurse worked with this other woman all the time. And so Mm -hmm. we asked, hi, we would like to be assigned to that nurse as well. And they told us that we couldn't be assigned to a nurse, that that, that wasn't a thing. Yet the woman told us that was her nurse and she was assigned to her and she worked with her every single time. And they were doing stuff like there was another nurse that came and she would stick the IV in and she was just very rough and things like that. And so it, there was a, a disparity in the way that the nurses acted. And so that's why my mom wanted this other nurse. And so it got to the point where even that woman was like, hey, are you noticing that they're treating me differently than you're, they're treating you? So again, we're going through all these mental gymnastics and say, no, it couldn't be that. And maybe it was just in all of these excuses for why what we were actively seeing wasn't racism and it wasn't bias. But this woman was like, I'm kind of seeing this and this is making me a little uncomfortable to the point where she went and talked to them, you know, talked to the people about it. Nothing was done. <laughs> we also had a conversation after the fact. Nothing was done, but <laughs> it, it does highlight the the fact that you were just saying yeah I mean it's because I like if we could have honest conversations about what we are as human beings which is imperfect we could talk about things like in-group preference like if you're my people I'm automatically going to have a positive regard for you go above and beyond for you go out of my way for you ways they're just very like human so of course come on back of course I'm going to make an effort to make sure this IV goes in more gently all that manifests in medicine, which is, again, dominated by people who are majority white and white adjacent, specifically of Asian descent. So if if the world is not that same demographic, then we need to be having a conversation about how your natural tendency to prefer your own in-group translates to discrimination, usually because there's a better treatment of your in-group members, not necessarily a worse treatment of your out-group members, but that better treatment of people from your group of course, still produces a disparity either way. Right. And then you think about other things that's like widely publicized about how there's this idea that people, that Black people specifically can tolerate pain more so than other groups. And so they don't want to give us pain medicine or they think we're going to get addicted to pain medicine and those things. So we wind up having two outcomes. One, we either learn to deal with pain or we wind up in this situation where we don't want to ask. You know what I mean? Like we're afraid to ask because we don't want them to think that we're trying to abuse the medicine when we're we're really truly in pain. Right. And even children are like socialized to detect that they are considered to be really less human, right? Because if someone's suffering and in pain, the humanistic response is to do whatever you possibly can to relieve that suffering and pain. Mm -hmm. Um, There are studies that show that even for children who are minorities, specifically black versus white children, they don't get the same kind of pain medication. Their their pain is not treated as aggressively. And it's like, what are we teaching these children? Wow. <laughs> what wow. are we teaching them? So then when they become adults and they're in the emergency room, they have to make disclaimers like, I mean, I don't want you to think I'm just here for the pills, but my leg pain is 10 out of 10. Like, what is that? Right, right. It's yeah. learned behavior. So yeah. as a professor, how do you address this with your students? Yeah. So I went to Yale Psychiatry for my residency training and I hold a voluntary faculty role there because I teach for free. And my students are psychiatry residents for the most part. And I'm in the social justice and health equity curriculum, okay, which is something all the residents in that department have to take. But I specifically focus on the human experience track, which is where I can be super dorky and geeked out about all the things that we're talking about. Like (laughs) 
Like how does bias affect your interaction in the treatment room? What about society's bias is internalized by you? Like connecting not just us as physicians, but us as people in the world and what we absorb. Mm -hmm. And talking about power explicitly and how people are given power and then people are have power taken away from them. And like having conversations about that in the clinical space as well. So I enjoy being able to have conversations that I never had a chance to have in my own training. Mm -hmm. I think across the country, you could say that that has increased over time, but it has not increased with a level of intensity or urgency to match the need of the people that we're offering care to. So again, if we can focus on A1Cs, which are blood sugar measurements, because the insurance company is pressuring us to get this right, why are we not focusing on these things too? Right. Right. So along those lines, as recipients of care, what are some things that the general public can do to make sure that their health cares and concern, uh, their health concerns are taken seriously? Yeah, there's actually a book I have that I bought, which I haven't read. I'm like looking for my piles of books. Um, <laughs> it's, it's something like what to know about the healthcare visit. And it was written by a doctor and she's basically giving you an insider's like scoop on what it means to walk into the doctor's office, what expectations the doctor has for you and what your role is as a patient. Okay. And I think that we have in our institution of medicine enjoyed a really paternalistic relationship with our patients. And I honestly, if I'm being real, that requires them to be ignorant to a certain degree. For us to hold all the power in the clinical relationship, we also have to hold all the knowledge. Mm -hmm. Uh, So not even telling patients what to do when they visit the doctor is very strange because then we blame them for not knowing their own medical history. But we didn't do good before they came in. So that book, and I'll send it to you, is one that I would recommend because, again, it puts the knowledge in the hands of the patient. Okay. And it gives you a sense of like what you're supposed to be doing. The thing I would say, though, is that like we're a service, like we are nothing but employees. So just like you go to the DMV is different. They're like they're like invincible people. (laughs) But like everywhere else, McDonald's, you have an expectation for a level of service. And by the way, I worked at McDonald's for like four and a half years. So (laughs) I have intimate knowledge of that. So I go to this place. I expect this thing. If it's not done in the way that I want it to be done, there are so many people who will park their cars, get out, go inside McDonald's and say, look, I want the manager. But that same kind of culture is not in medicine. And I, and it's, I think it's our fault because we've conditioned patients to just walk in and do what they're told in a very paternalistic way. So another thing I would say is what happens when your sandwich is wrong? Like you go in there and you ask for the manager. Mm-hmm. So what happens when your visit doesn't go well? Like go in there and ask for the patient services representative. Like who is the person I can speak to to advocate on my behalf? because I paid for this service where my insurance or my taxes, I paid for it and I need to get what I was supposed to get, like the right sandwich. But we don't teach patients how to advocate for themselves within the system either. And that's to our advantage because then if something bad happens, they're ignorant. They don't know what to do. So my like solution is to tell them every single thing about what the visit's supposed to be from beginning to end, mm-hmm. and then also give them information about what to do if things go wrong, because that's how you get to accountability, giving us feedback, and then right. that's for the better. So. You know, it's interesting too, because looking at it from another standpoint, I remember when my grandmother was in hospice, right? And I, um, I grew up with my grandmother from, you know, the time I was one until I was seven. Right. So she was the homie. Right. So when she was in, I, I literally stayed at hospice with her, like around the clock. And because I stayed there, I noticed some things that they were doing that they shouldn't have been doing. Like one of the nurses came and she didn't have a second nurse with her. And so she wanted to change the bed sheets. You're supposed to have two nurses, one to hold the patient and the other to actually Mm-hmm. the sheets things like that mm-hmm. so she's kind of pushing my grandmother up and kind of she pulled the sheet in a way that hurt her skin because she at this point had been laying there um her mm-hmm. skin was loose and it, you can get bed sores and things like that yeah and that was very problematic and I went to I I, I had her removed from my grandmother's service mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was like this is we're not doing this and the, ser- the level of care and the level of service to me was lacking. And so mm-hmm. it got to the point where I had a conversation with the chief <laughs> mm-hmm. and my uncle, which is my grandmother's son, 
he comes from a different different age and his thing was oh well you don't want to ruffle feathers because you know this and the other and i'm like we're not going to be scared of them we're not going to let them mistreat her because we're scared of them mistreating her that doesn't make sense right and i think that there's some education that definitely needs to be done on our end as consumers of care as well and maybe even as younger people talking to our older relatives Mm-hmm. and helping them learn to navigate the space mm-hmm. in a different way than they would have in the 60s and the 70s and when things were much different. Right, because they were socialized differently. I mean, the things I say on Twitter now, I would have got like shot or hung for saying mm-hmm. uh, if I grew up back then in the 60s, 70s or earlier. So I, I if not to pathologize, but to like, to add context to why people are not storming into clinics saying, fix my sandwich. Right. Um, if they're older like that, you, there could be retaliation for that. But I mean, I would also say the responsibility lies with people who are in the system too. Like collectively, we are in healthcare. We're not necessarily all physicians, but we're nurses. We're people that transport patients. We're the people that get x-ray images for patients. We're in there and we have insider's knowledge. So I think as healthcare professionals too, we do have a responsibility to translate that, which, which is why I appreciated that book but also recognizing that there's still lots of danger out there for talking about racism openly, but it's a different kind of danger now than it was like 40 years ago. Right. Now you might lose your job, which people are losing jobs left and right, even in medicine, because they told the truth. But yeah. Right. So we've talked about all the, the crazy things and the things that could go wrong and the things that do often go wrong. But mm-hmm. what are some positive changes that you've seen in medicine as it relates to diversity? Mm-hmm. So. The numbers for different groups have gotten better. <laughs> so Black women are doing relatively well than they were doing back way back then, like a few decades ago. Mm-hmm. We're pretty strong. We're like 60% of the African-American medical students, for example, are, are women, Black women. Okay. But that means that there's a lower percentage, like 30-something percent for Black men. So their numbers are actually, in 2014, they had less medical students who were Black males than they had in 1978. So wow. we... But in response to that, there's like targeted programs that are now a lot more granular. So the American Psychiatric Association, which is an imperfect organization that's working on its imperfections. One of those is by dedicating resources to a pipeline program specifically for black men. They also have one specifically for indigenous natives. So they're saying, okay, let me look at this pipeline, this pathway, where are people like missing? Right. intervene in a targeted way. So that's like an advanced thing. And I'll also say like in people's hearts and minds, (laughs) they're more interested and some people more committed to making diversity and then everything else, you know, equity, inclusion, and belonging a part of their, their being. Like they want it to be not just something that they talk about, but that they actually do. Right. And some of those people are in leadership positions that have power and influence and are like shifting cultures. And And that makes a difference. It does make a difference. So Yale doesn't mean much to people. It didn't mean much to me before I went there. But Yale psychiatry is one of those places where because there has been more diversity for the past few years, the culture has changed. And that change was possible because the leadership was open to that culture changing. So Yale psychiatry, and you can ask a bunch of people and they'll say the same thing. It's one of those places where you see the power of diversity because now me teaching the classes that I teach are because that cultural shift happened and opened up space for it. So, okay. Yeah. So it's there. So it's promising, right? (laughs) It is. It is. It is. So I love this question. One of my friends actually gave me this question. (laughs) when thinking about reparations Mm -hmm, what -hmm. should we be asking for in terms of healthcare? Mm, interesting what should we be asking for if we want like a rapid shift in how racism operates in medicine there this is my like radical belief there are people that we need to delete and replace okay is a lot of the current culture is begging people to care. And then not only that, begging them to invest dollars and resources. And reparations is supposed to be corrective, right? And mm-hmm. in order to correct, we just need to delete some people that are <laughs> never going to change right? and replace them. Like if that was my only reparations, if that was the whole community's only reparations, we would see returns on that 
by more longevity, we would live longer. We would have less stress just trying to take care of our own health. Mm -hmm. Children would survive birth. If we just, again, shifted some people out who are not competent enough Mm -hmm. to change, competent and invested enough to make the changes that need to be made. So that's one thing. And then the other thing I would say, I would say two things. I would say three things. Just give people, give us access to clean air, Mm. (laughs) clean clean water Mm -hmm. and stable housing. I mean, if we just had, and I would add food too, clean air, clean water, (laughs) nutritious food and stable housing. Those four things, it's like a reparations package would all change so many things about our life experiences too. Right. And you know, it's so funny that you mentioned that because I was watching the news and there was a, a report that was saying how you can literally live a few blocks over, you know, in another neighborhood for somebody and your life expectancy can be cut just based on the fact that you live a few blocks mm-hmm. over. Mm-hmm. And when you look at that, I mean, you know, redlining has not been a thing for a while. Right. But when you theoretically, but when you look at that, <laughs> you still see the ramifications of right. Right. redlining and of those systems that were put in place mm-hmm. to keep that access away from people of color or black people specifically. Right. And that's why, like, one of the phrases I came across in this piece on structural racism, it described health limiting versus health promoting environments. Mm. I love that binary because it implies choice because you put this sewage plant next to my neighborhood and you put this bus depot with all these toxic fumes next to my neighborhood Mm -hmm. and the sidewalks in the other neighborhood because you made a choice. Right. Um, So if we can make those kinds of choices, then we can make different kinds of choices. So give me access to like better air, clean water, more fresh food and places to live. And and these are things that, of course, we deserve because they're owed to us. Right. But it also, again, emphasizes that it's a choice. So. Right. Right. So as you think about the things that you're doing in your mission, what are some things you wish to see happen that will make you feel like your mission is complete? And maybe it's what you just said, those things (laughs) falling in place. Yeah, I mean, that could be it because in order to accomplish that, people have to make better choices. And these are people who have power and influence who are not me. Mm -hmm. So if those people are changing the choices that they make, then that shows that something, something happened. But um. I think like thinking about the minority tax, we're like 5% of physicians that are black um, doing the work to save so many different (laughs) populations, not even just black people. And I think another success would be that I don't need to show up. Like I could just take a nap. And I know in this conversation that we're going to be thinking about equity, that we're not going to be spouting racist stereotypes about people, and that we're going to have a decision outcome that is the best thing for this community or for X, Y, and Z. A lot of the pressure for all of us is the fact that we feel like we have to be there, and that's not fair. So another outcome would be more soldiers out there taking up the burden that don't look like me or my colleague. But I think, honestly, it should be patience. Like, we should be asking for feedback. Right, (laughs) right. It's telling us, like, no, I don't think my race necessarily affected my experience here. I actually don't think that was the case. Right. Like, be a possibility. And then we'll have also, we'll have some proof that maybe things are, are different and not in like a gaslighty mental gymnastics way. And like, a yeah, it actually didn't affect my care. Right. Um, we've removed the things that would usually cause it to. Right. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. So when people think of Dr. Jessica Isom, Mm-hmm. What do you want your lasting legacy to be? Interesting. <laughs> I think one of my favorite descriptions of what I and so many others do is <laughs> is shake the table. I have I have no idea where it came from, but I think a part of like fighting to become something like a physician, mm-hmm. although there's examples of that, is that I didn't do all of this to sit in a room and be quiet. So mm. after all of the things, which I'll write about someday, mm-hmm. I'm going to come in this room and shake the table <laughs> because that's, that is what the ancestors would want me to do. Right. Uh, so I would say that that as a legacy means that I've made it worthwhile, not only for myself, for everyone before me and for everyone after me, because that shaking of the table is supposed to produce things that are better. So that could be shaking the table in any way within the house of medicine, within my daughter's school, 
within the grocery store down the street, but just some kind of engagement that represented trying to make things better for people that come after me. So I love it. I love it. I hadn't heard that analogy before. I'm going to have to look that up, but I love that. That's it. Shaking the table. <laughs> once you're at it, once you're at it. <laughs> right. That That's a whole other conversation. We actually just released episode four and mm-hmm. we have a, a lengthy discussion about being in the room versus being at the table mm-hmm. and then being at the table and being able to make decisions that mm-hmm. affect change versus just being on the plate. <laughs> so. Right. So, Where can people reach you and how can they best support the work that you do? Yeah, so I am on Twitter. (laughs) That is the most active I am is on Twitter. And my handle is is long. It's at Dr. Jess Isom, MDMPH. All the degrees are included. As they Um, should be. Because you worked hard for them. I'm also on Instagram. I'm, I'm trying to be more active on there, but that's something too. And in the future, right now I'm building a consulting company. I'd like to offer anti-racism coaching and consulting to individuals and organizations that's focused on not just like the word, but skills, attitude, uh, and knowledge, competency. Mm-hmm. In the future, they can reach me by uh, typing in Vision for Equity LLC. And I'll announce on social media when I actually drop the website officially. So please do. And let me know because I'll, if it's not out by the time this episode comes out, I can mm-hmm. always go back and put it in the show notes. So please let me know when it comes out. I will. will. Well, that's all I have for today. Thank you so much for joining me. And Mm -hmm. thank you so much for the work that you do. It's so important. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And I look forward to listening to this episode and the one that you mentioned before, because I'm so interested. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. So that's it, folks. If you want to keep up with Diversity Be Like, be sure to check us out online. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at, at Diversity Be Like. You can also shoot us an email at podcast at Also, feel free to join the conversation on your favorite social network using hashtag Diversity Be Like. So thank you again. And until next week. 